So would you turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Um, It's a big chunk of scripture, so I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning. I'm going to do kind of a flyover of the events of the chapter. Then a little bit later on, we're going to look again at a few um, passages specifically, and you'll be going over it again in your groups too. So, Uh, But I'm just going to do kind of a summary. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 25, it starts out with the death of Samuel, the prophet, the one who had anointed God. And David is at this time in an uneasy truce of of a sorts with with Saul, who's been trying to kill him. David is the rightful king. Saul is still the king. And Saul has just acknowledged in previous chapters that, yes, you are the guy, but you're not my bud. So he's still off in the wilderness. And while he's in the wilderness, he and his men come upon a group of shepherds with a huge flock of sheep that are owned by a man named Nabal. And it's shearing time. They're getting ready to do their, uh, you know, big shearing and feasting and all of this. And what was common in that time was when a group like these men, like David and his men would come upon a group of shepherds like this, it was sort of a, we'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. We'll hang out. We're going to protect your sheep and keep them from marauders and bears and lions or whatever. And you know, you guys can feed us and we'll join in with you when the shearing time comes. So David sends some of his men to go and let Nabal know that they have been doing this, performing in a sense, this service for his men. And they, um, when they come to Nabal, he responds in a way that could be a little more rude and disrespectful. I'm not really sure how. He just basically says, who does this guy David think he is? You know, the son of Jesse. I mean, who does he think he is? And you guys, I don't even know who you are. Lots of slaves run away. And then you could be anybody. I'm not giving you any of my stuff. The text will tell us that David's men turn on their heels and hightail it back to David to let him know what this guy has said. Well, when they relay what Nabal has said, David responds in oh so godly a way. He suddenly decides, you know what? I'm going to go and annihilate that guy. I'm killing him. I'm killing anybody connected with him. I'm taking this guy down for this big disrespect. But at the same time, one of Nabal's men goes to Nabal's wife, Abigail, and says, Abigail, here's what just happened. These guys were with us. They did us no harm. They were great. And your husband, that scoundrel that nobody can talk to was so disrespectful. And now David is going to come and kill us all. What are you going to do? So while David and his men are coming to Nabal's home and going to slaughter everybody, Abigail jumps into action. She grabs a bunch of food, sends it with their servants ahead. She follows them out and intercepts David. And when she does, she meets with him. And in an attitude of humility of both action and speech, she says, listen, basically, my husband's name is Nabal. It means folly. He is a fool and a scoundrel. Don't do this thing. Your God's uh, chosen. Your God's anointed. You don't want this on your conscience. Don't, don't give in. Don't react badly to this foolish man. And David takes her counsel. And so he accepts her gift of all this great food and everything like any good man would. And then, you know, they're, they're all good. Well, she goes home and she goes in to let her husband know what just all, all of what just transpired, except that she finds that they're having this huge feast as they normally would be, but he is drunk. He is drunk. And she just looks at that and says, I'm not even going to try right now. So she waits till the next day when the text will tell us that the wine had left him. He's sober now. She goes in. She just simply relays, hey, this is what went down. 
God strikes his heart like a stone. He keels over, and 10 days later, he dies. And then, after that, David hears about this, and she's a beautiful woman, she's a smart woman, she's a wise woman. He decides to make her his wife. He goes and sends his men, actually, and says, you know, David wants to make you his wife. And she says, wisely, okay. And she goes from being the wife of a fool to being a wife of the soon to be and ultimately the king of Israel. So that's what's happening in chapter 25. And if you'd been reading chapter 25 or have been reading for Samuel up until this point, which we haven't been, that's not been our study, but you would have a lot of information, a lot of background about David. You would know who he was and what was going on with him and who he was related to. And you would know a lot about his life, but it's not the case for us as we look at Nabal and Abigail. We don't have any real background information about them. What we have is a snapshot. It's a moment in time, an encounter that we can look at. We don't really have any background information about their lives. Now, we're told that Nabal, you know, and it says his name means folly, that he's a fool. Um, But there's question about whether that's his given name or if that's a nickname or just a way he is always referred to because of the way that he acts. And we don't know, you know, maybe he started life as a humble shepherd with a pretty young wife and they loved each other. And like a lot of people, money changes everything. And he became corrupted by his riches. Or maybe from day one, this guy was a fool. We just don't know. We don't know if Abigail lived a marriage where she increasingly became more and more disappointed with who her husband was becoming, or from day one, she saw the writing on the wall. We just don't know. But what we do know is that in this moment, we see a married couple that are made up of two very different people. And so we're going to be talking about those contrasts of these characters and their actions throughout the rest of our study. Now, Nabal is a fool, And we see that clearly from the text. But Abigail is very, very different. She's one of my favorite women in the Bible. There's a lot of words that you could use to describe her. I think she was really quick-witted. She was quick-thinking. I think she was a really organized woman. Um, I think she was insightful. Uh, I think she was smart. We think, obviously, she was godly. But the first word that always comes to my mind is wise. I think of her as being wise. She seemed to be, or at least in this situation, a woman who knew what not to do, what to do, and when to do it. And these are all things that all day, every day, I want to know. I don't know about you, but that's how I want to be. And let's notice something about this couple. In this encounter, when you look at their encounters through this chapter, each person, both Nabal and Abigail, had very swift and very decisive responses to what they heard. Nobody takes a second to think, or nobody even has a second, to think or to ponder or to pray or to seek counsel or discuss anything. Each one reacted and then responded quickly to what they encountered. Now, every day, you and I face situations just like this. They're not life and death, hopefully, like Abigail's were, but we're faced with the situation where we need to have an immediate response. And while maybe like Abigail, our situation may not be of our own making, sometimes they can be, but like hers, sometimes our situation won't be of our own making, our reaction and our response to the situation, that's all on us. There's no getting around it. Whether it's a circumstance of our own making or something that someone else has done and caused, how we react and subsequently how we respond, 
that's all on us. That's all we can be responsible for. So what can we glean from the immediate reactions and responses of these two people? What revealed one as being a foolish person and one as being a wise person? Well, as you go through the text, you'll see it's by what they said. It's by what they said. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But in Luke chapter 6, Jesus starts out by saying, uh, in verse 43, for a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. But listen to what Jesus says in the very next verse, in verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my saying and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when, because it always does, the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is a man who built, is like the man who built a house on the earth without foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Listen, our heart condition is going to determine our reaction and then our subsequent response to all of the things that we encounter in life. And in these verses, Luke shows us clearly that what we know, what we know isn't the critical thing as much as it is what we do with what we know that determines what our responses will be and their outcome as much as it depends on us. In Psalm 90, Moses wrote, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth speaks, we need wisdom. We need wisdom and we need God's wisdom. Now you've heard the very simple and very accurate description or definition that wisdom is knowledge applied. You know, knowledge is the gathering of information. Wisdom acts properly on the knowledge. See, knowing God's word, just knowing what this says in and of itself does not make you wise. The staunchest atheist can read this and remember it and understand it and, and memorize it. But if he doesn't respond to it, he is showing himself unwise. That doesn't make him wise. Simply having information isn't what makes us wise. Wisdom is taking knowledge, good knowledge, from a good source and applying it in a good way. Biblically, an example of this would be knowledge memorizes the Ten Commandments, wisdom applies them. Now, every year, U.S. News and World Report, it says that they are the global authority in rankings and consumer advice. I didn't know that. Maybe you knew that. They release an annual assessment of, and this is important to me, the year's best diets. That's because I had that same kind of December, but I also had a lot of cookies, in December. Maybe you didn't, but I did. But in addition to ranking things, they offer a collection of critical data and information about a lot of things, but in this case, diet plans to help Americans and really people throughout the world to achieve a healthy lifestyle. 
Now, in case you're interested, for the seventh year in a row, something I'd never heard of called the DASH diet is the rates number one. But in a lot of different categories, um, it is tied with, and in a, close, in, in a close second, is just the simple Mediterranean diet. So if we just eat like Jesus, we'll be good. But this information, listen, this information, it's compiled using a wide-ranging criteria, and it's collected by a group of experts that then evaluate all of this data. Now listen, this is very different. This is very different than me in my living room, on my laptop, scrolling through Facebook with all those uh, recommended posts that pop up in your feed from people I have no idea who they are telling me that their diet plan is the best. It's all information. It's all information on the same thing. But which one of those sources is going to be the more trustworthy source that I would be wise to apply? The source of my information is as critical is critical to the success of my application of it. Second Timothy chapter three tells us, and I know that you know this, that all scripture, it's God breathed, it's profitable for every single area of our life. And responding to the word of God according to the word of God is how you and I are going to become wise women. <clears throat> our acquiring wisdom and living wisely. This is really important to God. This is something that is really important to God. And it's a deliberate action that we can take to gain wisdom and a deliberate decision that we make to respond to it. You know, it's so important to God that he put five books in the Bible that are, that are identified as the books of wisdom. It's Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. And the book of Proverbs alone is an, it's a brilliant and fantastically easy way to study what wisdom is, how to get it, practically how to live by it and why you would want to. And I've said this before, you've, you've heard me say it. Years ago, I heard um, Elizabeth George, the excellent author that everybody should be reading. She said, uh, she gives the advice of reading the day's uh, chapter of Pro the proverb, the, I can't talk, the chapter of proverb that corresponds with the day's date. So today being the 11th, again, Denise's birthday, we would read chapter 11 of Proverbs. Um, it was fun. On, on Monday, as I was preparing for all of this, it was the 8th, and I was reading chapter 8, and it's the chapter that's all about wisdom and, and who she is. And you know what? I've committed to doing that afresh this year because I don't know about you, but I am in a season of life where I have never been more aware of my need for God's wisdom to direct my life this year. And this is something I'm doing in addition to my regular Bible reading plan. It takes like four minutes to read a chapter of Proverbs and things and think about it. Here's something else. You might not know this. You're allowed to read your Bible more than once a day. You can do that. It doesn't just have to be a morning time thing, gals. You could do that any old time. I'll tell you, it's a good thing to be in the book of Proverbs. You know, in the first book of, or in, in the first chapter of James, and I love James, we're told that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and God will give it up to all liberally, liberally and without reproach. Um, but let him ask in faith without doubting. And if any of you need wisdom, and if you're at all wise, you will admit that you need more, ask him for it. Ask him specifically for it. And ask him expecting him to give it to you. Now, we don't have, 
again, because this is just a snapshot. I'm gone. Oh, there I'm back. That was weird. Um, we don't have any specific information about the steps or the practices or the influences in Abigail's life that made her able to be this wise woman who was the voice of reason in this situation. But clearly her wisdom was not of herself. It was wisdom that was from above. And how do I know that? Okay, well, think just a second about what you know about these two people, what you know about the kind of person that Nabal is and the kind of person that Abigail is. And then listen as I read, thinking of those contrasts, listen to the contrasts as I read to you from James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Is that not a perfect definition of these two people? Do you not see the contrast in the wisdom that is of above, from above and the wisdom from below and the way that one person behaves and speaks and the way the other person behaves and speaks? Nabal epitomizes this worldly, fleshly, demonic way of life. In Abigail, this wise and humble, seeking peace and sowing peace practically. She is the picture of wisdom. And I want to look at three evidences of her wisdom, <clears throat> her knowledge Excuse me. Her knowledge applied well to the situation that she finds herself in. The way that she applied the, her own, her wisdom to, that she knew to the situation she finds herself in, by what she did and by what she said, we are going to see the wise application of what Abigail knew. First of all, she knew who she was talking to. We see in several encounters that she knew who she was talking to. She also knew what to say to whom she was speaking, and she knew when to say it. So let's look at what she did with what she knew. Let's pick it up in 1 Samuel 25, looking at verse 14. Um, it says, now one of the young men, again, one of the young men that had been with Nabal when all of this took place, this great insult to David, comes and says, uh, he told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them, or that even means scolded or scorned at them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything, as long as we were accompanied by them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both day and night, all the time they were with, that we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that no one can speak to him. 
And then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of grapes, or a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them onto donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me, see I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode the donkey that she went under the cover of the hill, and there was David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. First of all, we see her this encounter with this young man. This man comes to her, and he brings her some information. Listen, sometimes people are going to come to us, and they're going to tell you things. They're going to tell you things. And you have to, and I have to, determine who we are hearing from, as well as what it is that we are hearing. Two things here, notice. She doesn't question this guy. And we know from the text that he does relay accurately what did occur. But she doesn't get into it with him. She doesn't ask him a bunch of questions. She also doesn't engage with him and and seek counsel from him or any of that kind of thing. That's not his role. He, He is a servant and he comes and he must have been a trustworthy person. Um, again, always consider, always consider the trustworthiness of a person that is bringing you information. And listen, this isn't being judgy or skeptical or critical. This is being wise. The source of the information, again, it's as important as the information itself. And we can get ourselves into trouble when we don't consider the source of the things that we are being told, whether it's in our personal relationships, in our homes, in our families, or if it's in our work or ministry relationships, this is so, so important. We're going to hear things. We're going to hear things about people or about situations, and our default is going to be to the information. We're going to first think about the information, and that's going to prompt our reaction and subsequently our response. But if we can just stop and think a minute about the source Is this a godly, helpful friend bringing me this information? Or in this case, a a trusted, uh, this was a servant, but maybe a trusted co-worker or co-laborer that you know is always accurate? Or is this the person that's bringing information to you that only ever sees the problem in every situation and seems to have that narrow kind of negative view? You know, is it a person who's genuinely concerned? Or is it that person that, you know, we all know someone like this. We don't ever want to be this person. You know, they always have that little bit of information that maybe they shouldn't be passing that on. Or is it a person who is actually involved in the situation, who's actually personally involved in what's going on? Or is this someone just passing information on to you secondhand? What we do with what we hear starts with where it comes from. Again, She doesn't question this guy. She doesn't seek counsel. That's not his role. She sees him as someone trusted uh, to bring her good and accurate information. She takes this information and she acts. And then she goes out to see David. And when she reaches David, she shows that she knows who he is. And she shows it both by the things she does and the things she says. Let's pick it up in verse 23. It says, now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey. She fell on her face before David and bowed to the ground. And so she fell at his feet and said, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. She goes in an attitude of humility and in in a 
in a humble speech, she asks. She doesn't seem to give him a minute to get a word in edgewise, but she does ask, can I speak to you? Can your maidservant speak to you? In verse 26, now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies be as those who seek harm, for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present, all this food, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespasses of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. This shows she knows his position, who he is, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout all your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from a pocket of a sling." And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, this, meaning this incident, will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood shed without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. While Abigail's response was immediate action, she may, it seems, probably had some time to prepare what she was going to say. She knew who she was going to talk, who she was going to speak with, not just a guy that was coming to slaughter everyone, but she knew who he was, that he is the promised and anointed king of Israel. And she approaches him with this humble and respectful and accurate speech. You know, he doesn't get it really a chance to say anything. And I think her, her, um, her earnestness must have been as striking to him as what she was saying. But she knows David's position. She knows something about the situation with he and Saul. She knows about the situation and his response to it with her husband. And she speaks to him in a humble and respectful way with peacemaking on her mind. She reminds him of who he is. She reminds him of who he's going to be. And she does it humbly and respectfully. Now listen, when we speak to one another, respecting a person's role or position in our lives is really important. You know, you can be totally right in your opinion. You can be totally right with your information when you're talking to your husband or your boss or a coworker or your mom or a teacher or ministry leader and throw a whole bit a wrench into the whole situation by being disrespectful. She's not trying to flatter him here, but she's showing him that she knows who he is, she respects who he is, and she's giving honor where honor is due. Now, Nabal, her conversation with him, well, take a look at verse 36. It says, now Abigail went to Nabal and there he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king for, and, uh, and Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. And therefore she told him nothing little or much until the morning light. Proverbs 26, four says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Now, maybe you've never done this. I've done this. Someone is speaking foolishly. They're acting foolishly. And you go, and you're trying to be the voice of wisdom. You're trying to be the voice of reason. You're trying to, okay, I'm going to come alongside, and I'm going to help. Let's talk about this. And as you try to, they just sort of dial up the crazy. 
They just get worse. And pretty soon, now you're just dialing up your crazy because you've kind of lost the thread. Well, okay, now I'm responding to the thing that you said. Well, now you're back in my face and it just goes on and it spins out of control. And if somebody walked in the room, they'd go, look at these crazy women. He's listen to these foolish, they're both these yammering foolish women. You're totally off the track. I've had this happen and it happens so often by choosing the wrong time to engage with someone. You know, Abigail comes in and she sees yet again that her husband is not just being himself, but he's really given over to foolishness. In this case, drunkenness. And she knows that to try to talk to somebody who's bound up in foolishness like that, at that moment, it's just futile. It's just futile. So often, it just makes a bad situation worse. And this kind of thing requires wisdom. We've probably all dealt with somebody who is acting foolish or, or maybe make, like Nabal, making foolish decisions, talking foolishly like Nabal, somebody, this is the measure of their life. This isn't an isolated incident, but, but they're living like he is currently living. So do we do what she did and just walk away and leave them to their foolishness? Well, I'll admit there have been times when I have just wanted to wash my hands and do exactly that, but no. No, we don't. But while she doesn't engage with him in that moment, when he's in the midst of acting like a fool, she does do it when he isn't. Look at verse 37. It says, So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. Uh, drop down to verse 40. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, uh, Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. And then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant, to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David, and she became his wife. While his character is marked by foolishness, he is known for being someone who is foolish and, and even a scoundrel. She waits till he is not engaged in foolish behavior or foolish talk to try to relay important information about what has occurred. Again, we may have the right information, but the right time to share it requires wisdom. Knowing who we're talking to and when it might be the best time to engage. Again, we have to know who we're talking to. We need... Um, to know how to talk to them, and we need to know when to talk to them. And again, this is just not about knowledge, but it's about the source of the knowledge. The wisdom in what to do with what we know comes from who it is that is directing us. Is it my flesh or is it the Lord? When we seek the Lord's way, not just his word, but when he seek, we seek his way, then we begin to gain that heart of wisdom. When we are submitted to what he says, we'll operate in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the weakness of our flesh. And what I love about the wise principles of the book of Proverbs is they're so often like these people presented to us in contrast. It's so easy to see what wisdom is and what to do. It's, you know, the wise person does this, the fool does that. The wise person has this, the foolish person loses that. 
It's so clear to see the answer to the question, what is the wise thing to do? Now, they are principles, okay? They're not going to address the specific practical things like pick the long bed truck or pick the short bed truck. They're not going to tell me what pickup truck to buy, but they will direct us in the processes that help us work out what is important to God and in his wisdom, and then not leaning, as we're told in Proverbs 3, on our own understanding, which is so, so futile. You know, somewhere along the line, Abigail started to gain a heart of wisdom. And I believe that Abigail was wise because of her circumstances and not in spite of them. Because whatever her trials, her disappointments, her struggles in life and why she had them, she had not turned to her own ways. She had turned to God's ways. And trials, whether they're long or they're short, they're small or they're great, they should drive those of us who know God to God and not from God. And in the pain, the problems that we have, um, and in all those problems, we're going to gain, as we draw near to him, wisdom and strength and perseverance when we look not to ourselves or to a change of our circumstances, but when we look to God. Now, for us on this side of the cross, we look not to ourselves, but unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Or as it says in the Christian Standard Bible translation, keeping, keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is the source and the protector, or per, excuse me, perfecter of our faith and protector of our faith, but the verse is perfecter. But I love that. Keeping, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Now, I don't know what Abigail expected when she went in and finally told Nabal what had happened, but I'm fairly certain she did not expect him to keel over and die 10 days later. I just, I don't think that's what she thought would happen. That was probably a very unexpected outcome. And sometimes, you know, we're going to walk in wisdom. We're going to walk in the ways of the Lord. And there are going to be unexpected outcomes. And sometimes they'll be good. And sometimes they'll seem like they're not so good. But we can know this. When we walk in wisdom, we can trust the results that are from God's hands. We can trust the results that are from God's hands. Listen, as much as it is up to you, as much as it is up to me, we need to walk in wisdom. We need to be at peace as much as it is up to us, it says in the scripture, with all people, to be women who are sowers of peace, who are sowers of righteousness, and not fools that stir up strife. Abigail walked in wisdom that was from above. It shaped her heart. It shaped her life. And in this instant, it saved her life. She walked in the wisdom that was from above. It is wisdom that I can have and that you can have when we simply yield ourselves to the Lord, ask knowing and expecting him to give it to us, and yielding to his place in our life. Lord, we want to be women of your word. Lord, women, not just of your word that we know, but women of the way of your word. Help us, Lord, to gain that heart of wisdom, to gain the heart of wisdom as we learn of you, as we learn from you, as we yield to you, as we are empowered by you. Lord, help us to be wise women, that build in all areas of our lives, not foolish women that with their own hands tear down. You are such a giver of good things. 
the grace you gave that saved us was more than enough, God. Lord, we thank you for that grace that saved. We thank you for the grace that sanctifies your loving kindness and your long suffering to us. And God, make us women who are vessels of grace, the grace that we receive to those around us. Help us to show that we are your women walking in your wisdom by the way that we respond to you in obedience and the way that we respond to all of those around us, Lord, being conduits of wisdom and of love, of goodness and kindness and all the many things that you've done for us. Let us be vessels of pouring that out on others, God. And I pray for these women, Lord, as we start this new year of Bible study, that you would just help each one, Lord, to be diligent in your word, to be responding to your word in obedience, God, that each one of us would persevere to the end. Uh, We have so much to learn from these women, and we want to be women that leave this place every week, Lord, changed for having been with you. And so I do pray that you would just continue by your spirit to do that work in our hearts as we go to group. And we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.